Hi, and welcome to the Full Bloom Project, a body-positive parenting podcast dedicated to promoting emotional wellness in our children and health at every size for the whole family. Each week, we speak with extraordinary experts and distill everything from scholarly research to self-help books into accessible and digestible daily parenting practices. We're your hosts, Zoe Bisbank and Leslie Block, both New York City-based adolescent eating disorder psychotherapists and mothers of two, here to help you help your children fully bloom. Quick reminder that this podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not intended for and shouldn't replace advice from a medical or mental health professional. Welcome back to the Full Bloom Podcast. This is episode number 52 and the finale episode of season two. That's right. We have a very special guest for you today and a very, very important conversation. But before we get into it, we just wanted to talk a little bit about our plans moving forward for season three. So we have decided that we will be starting season three. We're going to take one week off here next week. And then we will be launching the first episode of season three in two weeks. And for season three, we're going to launch episodes every other week because you want to tell them about what we're thinking for season three? Yeah, we've hinted at it in a few different episodes kind of leading up to this finale today. But part of what we really want to explore next season are your questions. We really want to get more specific, more personal about how these issues that we talk about here at the Full Bloom Project are really impacting very real people, real kids, real teens, real parents, real professionals. We've gotten some wonderful questions and we're continuing to collect more. And we're going to continue to bring you wonderful researchers and activists and maybe some clinicians that can join us for interesting conversations that dig deeper into real nuance and specifics about how do we manage all of this stuff that we talk about here. And so because these episodes may require a little bit more curation, we are going to give ourselves a week more in between airing. So we'll we'll still be here on a very regular rhythm, but you will be hearing from us every other week starting when will that first episode air? The first episode of season 3 will air on March 11th. So whenever you're listening to this, if it's not March 11th yet, you can wait and hear from us on March 11th for episode 1 of season mm-hmm. 3 of the Full Bloom podcast. All right, so we're going to get into this finale episode, which I had such a blast speaking with this guest who is Virgie Tovar, who's an author, activist, and one of the nation's leading experts and lecturers on weight-based discrimination and body image. Basically, we just got real with Virgie. She's one of the best people out there just talking about the hardest things possible to talk about. And I think that it's an important conversation to bring all of you listeners in on and really get acquainted with what does fat activism look like and uh, some unique points about how to really take better care of our young people, young girls in particular of color. Virgie, welcome to the Full Bloom Podcast. Mm, Thank you. 
we're so happy to have you with us for a brief chat this morning and would love just to kick off by hearing you tell us a little bit about uh, the work that you do and who you are. Yeah, um, well, so I'm the author of You Have the Right to Remain Fat and also a new book called The Self-Love Revolution, Radical Body Positivity for Girls of Color. I think my work is really well summarized by, I started this hashtag campaign a few years ago and it was sort of just like a fun thing when hashtags just started becoming a thing. Um, and I decided to sort of, I decided, you know, what is my mission? And it is lose hate, not wait. Um, and so, I mean, for me, when I think about that, what that means to me, it was kind of a question. It was like a, a sort of point of inquiry, right? Like what would the world look like if every single ounce of energy and every dollar we spent attempting to control the size of our body, what if we put that into the work of self-love and self-acceptance and loving and accepting all the bodies around us? Because I think, right, like we are a culture that is preoccupied with optimization, with outcome, and with using our body as, as a form of currency, as a way to get things that every human being wants, love, dignity, respect. And um, I'm somebody who has been a higher weight my entire life. I was born a fat baby. I was a fat kid. I was a fat adult. And along the way, I learned that there was something very wrong with me and that it was my job to fix it. Essentially, I learned that a fat person is a failed thin person person mm -hmm. and that it was my job and the job of all fat people to become thin people by any means necessary. And the very alluring solution, the simple solution that was presented to me, the allegedly simple solution was, well, all you have to do is eat less and move more. And this is, again, it's very alluringly simple. Um, and yet if you, you know, if you're a larger person, you have likely undertaken that many times in your life and it has not worked. And I think what's really hard is when you've been taught that something's wrong with you, you accept blame for all kinds of things that actually aren't your fault. So, I mean, at, in adulthood, um, I came into researching an area called fat studies, which was looking at the history of fat people, how fatness is constructed in our culture, what diet culture is, where diets came from, um, and the way that those things connect to race and gender, ability, um, all kinds of things. And, and I learned that what happened to me was that I experienced something called fat phobia, which is a form of discrimination and bigotry. And in our culture, um, negative attitudes towards fat and fat people are not considered a form of discrimination. Um, we're heading in that direction as a culture right now, but currently on a wide scale, that's not what's happening. People believe that they can exercise fat phobia with self-righteousness because we've been told that um, thin people just live healthier, longer lives. Another thing that kind of my research yielded was finding that, first of all, like, I mean, in addition to fat people not being failed thin people, 
fat people have a lot of strength and resiliency that is not seen in our culture because of fat phobia. And also that fat people experience a level of discrimination that is on par with some of the most insidious widespread forms of discrimination in our culture. And those things have physiological effects on the body. They lead to things like chronic illness. They lead to things like cardiovascular ill health. And so it's really difficult. It's a very complex picture and it's very simplistic to say, you know, these people who have never experienced this lifelong, you know, hatred from others thrive in a way that the people who have experienced this hatred do not. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it put that way, it sort of is like, right, that makes complete sense. So the, like this group has less access to jobs, less access to romantic relationships, less access to freedom, less access to a life free of, of hateful attitudes, and so on, on and on and on and on. So anyway, um, my work in short is attempting to end fat phobia. But more than that, it's attempting to create a world in which people of all sizes can actually thrive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, and I think we are both fans of your work and books and social media presence and, and just know how essential it is to have more voices like yours in the world. And even as I listen to you introduce yourself, I'm thinking about how special it is for you to introduce yourself to parents that are listening just to help them get thinking about their own thoughts and feelings. And we try to talk a lot in a very gentle way, um, in a non-shaming way about kind of internalized fat phobia and weight stigma a lot on the podcast. You know, I, I want all, all children of those parents to also kind of get a sense of who you are and what kind of work you're doing in the world, because it's very inspiring and, and there's room for others to join. And I know we have a lot of questions for you today, but since you were already kicking us off by using this word fat to describe your body, could you just kind of give us a little basic information about what it means to be a fat activist and also sort of, you know, even just the use of that word fat and this idea of reclaiming the word fat as a neutral descriptor? Because there may be folks listening that are kind of new to this type of advocacy. Right. Um, yeah, we have been largely socialized to understand the word fat as an epithet, as a word that is impolite. And I think for some people all over the weight spectrum, it still has that charge. So I often tell people, you know, it's like it's really great to use the word as a neutral descriptor and also not ignore the fact that it's still deeply painful for some people to even, you know, hear that word or be described as that word. So making sure that they are excited about like, you know, inviting them to talk about how they talk about their bodies and all bodies. So but for me, that word really came into my vocabulary in a major way when I was introduced to fat activism um, in, I think it was 2011. Um, and to give context, fat activism sort of officially began in 1969 with the um, establishment of the National Association to Advance Fat Acceptance. And about a year later, it was essentially, the, the concept was that it was a chapter, you could create your own chapter in your own city and be part of this national movement. And about a year later, a sort of more radical, somewhat quote-unquote rogue chapter of NAFA, which is the acronym for the National Association, it sort of, you know, started to um, espouse more radical concepts, right? Like the idea that maybe acceptance wasn't the 
end game for everybody, right? Some people wanted to not just be, you know, experiencing like legislative changes and more access, but actually wanted to thrive and imagine a culture that, you know, wasn't just slightly edited to accommodate fat people, but that was actually focused on justice, which is, you know, a a very radical, very major project. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And so, you know, they went about, and and essentially, right, NASA caught wind of of this, and we're sort of like, you know, you need to rein it in a little bit, you're getting a little bit too out there. And they were like, well, we're gonna leave and make our own thing. Mm -hmm. And they decided to make this thing called the Fat Underground. And the Fat Underground and the history that unfolded from that, that really is um, the predecessor or the antecedent or like the grandparent of the modern day body positivity movement. Yeah. That was the germinating point for that. Anyway, in both NAFA's framework and the Fat Underground's framework, the word fat went between like a neutral descriptor and something that was actually almost like a reclamation in, in the way that it was sort of a challenge, right? I think what's interesting when you use the word fat is that a, a, as a fat person, like when you're a larger bodied person and you're using that word, the way that I think of it is this, right? When you are fat, the threat of someone making fun of your body or judging you for your body is always looming. It's like a silent sort of, it's like a ticking time bomb. And when you're living in in a bigger body, you're always anticipating for that bomb to go off. And what happens when you, you take the bomb into your hands Mm -hmm. (laughs) and you're like, all right, I'm not going to let it loom silently crackling in the air. I'm actually going to throw down the Trump card, so to speak. And and I'm going to take back the power in this exchange. And that's how I often see people, at least in the fat activism spaces I've been in, that's how it's kind of used, right? Like, I am not going to give up my power in the hopes that you will not act in a bigoted way. I am going to throw down and put skin in the game. And I'm going to be the one who who puts out, you know, the most painful word that I know. I'm going to put it out there and I'm going to modulate in that way. That's what the word fat means for me. There's sort of a spectrum. I'm more in the like, I mean, for me, like I do enjoy the the play of like the modulation, right? Like I think for marginalized people all over the spectrum, right? Whether you're a fat person or a person of color or a queer person or whatever, right? Like language is a big part of taking the part of you that you have been taught to be the most ashamed of and just saying like, I'm not ashamed of this. And in fact, I'm so not ashamed that I'm going to, I'm going to hold it so dear and, and high up in my identity saliency. And I think like being a fat activist, I think it means a lot of different things to different people, but for me, it means, you know, using the tools that are really important to me and that I use all the time and making body justice a daily part of my practice in all the different ways and all the different methods that I use all the time. And that for me, it, it, it has a lot to do with writing. I'm, I definitely identify as sort of a public intellectual, like I have academic training, but I don't use that training to stay within the within the academic conversation, though I do love the academic conversation. I use my theoretical training to make theory really accessible to people. And I find that it really helps them 
to understand, right? Because everything that we do happens in a context. And a lot of times what keeps people in a really hard place and a very lonely place is the belief that they're the only ones experiencing it. Mm -hmm. Um, And what happens when, you know, when you use theory is you're like, no, every single thing in history has led to this moment, to this feeling that you're having, and you're not the only one. There's, I mean, a lot of people think of theory as this very cold, alienating, elitist thing, and it, and it certainly it can be. But for me, it's like this invitation to recognize that we're part of a legacy and our story makes complete sense when you think about that legacy. Yeah, I just the idea that our story makes complete sense, you know, that validation Mm -hmm. is powerful. And I want to hear more about your writing. I know you have a new book coming out, um, The Self-Love Revolution, really aimed at specifically helping girls of color cultivate radical body positivity. Can you tell us more about that book? And specifically, why did you specifically write to girls of color? Here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, interestingly, the publisher approached me with the Girls of Color project. And it was it was the first time a publisher had asked me to talk to people of color particularly, which was it was it was really interesting the internal um response I had to it. It was excitement, but there was also this interesting component of grief that was involved because I I had to realize, you know, in mainstream publishing, the the target demographic is still considered like a straight, white, cisgender woman in the Midwest. And and everybody, no matter who you are, you're expected to serve that audience. And it's just like, right, when, as a person of color who's like, you know, from California and from an immigrant trajectory and all this stuff, really having to reconcile that whether it was articulated or not, that was always kind of the audience that I was expected to have in mind. Mm-hmm. And then to have this beautiful invitation to be like, actually, we are not going after those dollars. We're not going after the Walmart dollars. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're going after this demo that exists and that is really important and that people are often not writing to. And this is sort of like, I mean, just a quick aside in the maddening nature of publishing where it's sort of like a chicken and egg thing where I'm like, well, if you're only ever writing to that demo, of course, that's the demo that's buying your stuff. Yeah. So it's a little bit like the dog eating its own tail. I'm like, okay, I just can't, I can't, I can't even take it on. Right. You guys have spreadsheets. I'm just going to be over here trying to do my thing. Um, (laughs) Anyway. Writing the story. Yes, totally. So, um, it was interesting uh, in in that way, sort of having this explicit invitation to do that. And um, the book, in a lot of ways, is it's a synthesis of all of my years of training and activism and feminism and anti-racism. I mean, my first introduction to politics was anti-racism. And then after that, it was feminism. And then after that, it was fat liberation, sort of fat activism. Um, And it really is a synthesis of of that journey that I share with the reader. And as I kind of want to tell you some stories leading up to it, I think it gets to the magic of the book. Um, So I found that for the first time, I mean, I'm somebody who actually writes very quickly. I don't, I don't, when it comes to this work, I don't tend to have a lot of writer's block because I have so much to say, as you, as you can tell. Um, 
<laughs> but I found that I had writer's block for the first time and I could not understand why. I couldn't understand why I couldn't sit down. And it was like this real terror of sitting down with the laptop, right? Just sitting down and committing words to the page. And I avoided it like a pro, right? Like I did everything imaginable, right? Like I would like, do, I would do all these interviews and then I would talk to my friends and then I would, you know, try to synthesize that. And then I would like craft in an attempt to kickstart my creativity. And it just kind of kept going in circles. And at, at some point I was like, you have to just write something. And I had this incredible offer from a friend um, who, who teaches at the University of Nevada, Reno. She had an apartment available and she was like, it's so quiet. Just go do whatever you want, get coffee, you know, write all day, just hang out. And so I went for a week to this like apartment in Reno and I was still avoiding and I was like, okay, like what I have to, I'm just going to consult the tarot and see what the tarot has to tell me about this. (laughs) So I I pulled a bunch of cards. Uh, I think I pulled actually three cards and the card that spoke most clearly to this project was the star archetype, which is in the major arcana. And in my deck, the star card is David Bowie. (laughs) in the Iggy Stardust image where he has the lightning bolt across his forehead. And that became the inspiration for the start, right? And so I took the card, I sort of laid it down and I sat down to write. And like when I sat down to write, it started to thunder and light and there was lightning and thunder outside. So a storm started and it was just, I was just like, Oh my God, this is too much. Too much. See the lightning from inside um, where I was writing. And I just was like, oh, my God, it's a sign, right? Like, I just felt like it was a sign. So I wrote, the first thing I wrote was a letter to the reader. I was like, hey, my name is Virgie. And I really, really, really was scared to write this book. And then I I tell her the story that I just told you. And then I'm like, you know, what's so funny is that I think what's scared me was that I wanted to, it was so important to get the message right because I care so much about you. I don't even know you, but I care so much about you that um, I, I wanted to get this message to be perfect. And it's so funny because my work is absolutely about understanding the human state as, as already always perfect. And that's what I'm going to attempt to convince you. So it's funny that I put all this weird pressure on myself while I was actually my whole intention with this book was to show you that you have to, you don't have to do anything to already always be perfect. And so like, it's this really earnest kind of intimate letter that's, you know, written to her and, and explains sort of like, what does this card mean to me? Why does it matter? Because I really wanted to figure out, right. I was like, okay, okay. I'm giving her a lot of information, right? This book is going to cover history. It's going to cover the emergence of body image. It's going to help her equip her with questions to ask around things like what things in my life do I engage with that, maybe aren't the most awesome or the most feminist, but like have a particular, like, for example, we, like we got into, I mean, I get into the conversation around something like waist, a waist trainer, right. Which is something that when I, sorry, I was, I interviewed a lot of girls of color, um, leading up to writing the book and uh, the waist trainer was something that came up again and again and again. So like for people who don't know, it's a compression wear garment. Mm -hmm. That's supposed to shape the body so that your waist is very small and your 
hips um, are bigger, right? And I was sort of thinking, right, about this, and I'm like, all right, yeah, I understand the wolf trainer is coming out of, like, a very particular legacy of sexism, of compression garments, which we know harm internal organs and, like, and hinder digestion and maybe even breathing at times. We understand these things as bad, and yet, right, like, the whole point of this book is not for me to tell her more stuff she can and cannot do because she's a girl of color who's being told constantly what she can and cannot to mm-hmm. um, instead to equip her with uh, with questions with inquiry to be like all right you know what do I know about this thing and then why do I use it and then is there some way in which I can come to my own my own conclusion about it because it's possible and I think this is true for girls in general who are like some of the most disempowered people in our culture they don't live in a perfect world so to ask them to act as if they are living in a world in which they are Mm -hmm. safe to ask them to pretend that they live in a world where the culture is invested in their future that is not fair because the culture is not invested in our future as far as I can tell. Yeah, so I think me, I just want to say ahead. there, like, I think that you just, I was talking to Zoe before we started this about some of the challenges that I've been having in my clinical work. And I think that's exactly the what you just said in sitting with particularly young adolescent girls really struggling with fat phobia and internalized weight stigma and just terrified of it. The the thing that I get back often is so much anger and feeling of being misunderstood that I'm projecting some kind of perfect world onto them, which they are not living in, and that I don't understand that these feelings are so real, which I do understand. And I think it's so beautiful that you went there first, because I think that's we just have to do that in order to move this conversation forward in our young and our youngest most vulnerable I mean I loved what you just said about like young girls are in some ways the most most vulnerable how do we spark this conversation then it's tricky and so I love that you're really you really spent a lot of time thinking about this and continue I just wanted to to -hmm. reinforce how magical that moment in your writing must have been for you yeah, and thank you for saying that. I mean, I, I this is what's so interesting and, and complicated about our culture and how we treat girls and women, right? Like we as a culture like to believe, and I think many of us actually do, but like on, I'm talking on grand cultural scale, when you look at things like legislation, when you look at things like societal realities, we as a culture like to think that we are invested in girls. And there's something very alluring about that, right? And I think, to be fair, we do put a lot of money behind girls' initiatives and whatnot, but there is something that happens when she goes from being a girl to being a woman that, uh, like, that that support goes away, and all of a sudden she's subject to sexism and I mean she's subject to that even as a kid but it's like much more blatant right she's dealing with constantly having all kinds of rights that should just be hers that are human rights that are constantly like up for debate and it's very upsetting to me right that like at the end of the day right like if we lived in a culture that actually invested in girls we would not be facing a reality in which 
like a girl is more likely to experience assault than to experience like a thriving life in which she is supported structurally and socially. Mm-hmm. That's the truth of our culture. And so for me, um, I'm like, all right, I can't solve all of that. But for, you know, it really starts with in the, and the book kind of is about, I'm like, all right, at the end of the day, this book is about a lot of things, but it's ultimately about convincing her that she has this extraordinary power, that it can show up in all these different ways, right? Like it can show up in her having boundaries. It can show up in her leaning into her intuition. And and in the book, I'm like, you know, a lot of things that you're going to experience aren't necessarily the way that you want the world to look, but don't believe anybody who tells you that that is a permanent state because they're lying. And I think for me in writing this book, it was really about recognizing that I've got experience that she doesn't have, but she has imagination. She has this extraordinary power to imagine the world that she's going to inherit, that the next generation after her is going to inherit. And I don't have that because I'm entrenched in this world, right? Um, And she's sort of, I see her as like somebody who is a world crosser, right? She can, she's in this world, but she still has this beautiful capacity to see a world that is just that is incredible right that that is and and i and i encourage her in the book to imagine that world and to see herself as having that asset uniquely but yeah so like there's a lot of tool building but you know i think that the the purpose the mission of the book is really summarized by like the inscription right they're like what do you want the inscription to say and i was like i want the inscription to say for every girl who has felt ugly wrong bad you are beautiful, you are good, you are powerful beyond imagination. And really like, because I think, and to get to the specificity of writing to girls of color, one of the things that racism does is it strips away the sense that you are good fundamentally. Mm-hmm. That And that, that sense that you are sullied somehow by being a person of color is so deep in the, one of the most, I mean, there's so many insidious components to racism, but to me, like that, that is one of the biggest ones. And, and I assert to her over and over again in the book, like there is nothing that you can do. There is nothing that you can experience that will ever make you bad and will ever not make you perfect mm-hmm. and yeah so that's kind of like the book <laughs> yeah no no it's uh I, I it's so powerful and and just so important not just for young people to read but also for them to get to know your voice because it's such a wonderful model for the way that I mean certainly here we want people to start thinking and feeling and speaking themselves and you know because we are having this conversation in the presence of parents that are listening we're wondering if you could just speak to any advice through your research and writing uh, and lived experience that you might have for parents of girls of color in particular about steps they can take to help their daughters build body positivity Yeah, I mean, I think it's really helpful. So context is this. It's really important to consistently contextualize because it's often like women and femmes who are raising children. Yeah. Um, And so you're already always experiencing sexism as you're trying to parent, which is a lot. So I often say, you know, like if your kid is not interested in your investment in them not having body shame, it's okay. You can just be like that broken record automaton. Mm -hmm. It's it's, like you need to be that person. 
right? And it doesn't matter how much she might or your kid might resist because they're getting the messaging that they need to conform by any means necessary. And you're, and no matter how much they tell you, they don't want to hear about it, da, da, whatever, like they're going to clap back. Um, that's normal. Um, <laughs> like you have not failed and you can just kind of stay on your path, right? Um, like the, like the turtle, like, right. Cause like the job of raising a child really is that tortoise journey, not the hare journey. And because right, these are things they're going to, they're going to hold on for the rest of their lives. So, you know, I just want to give a blanket statement of like, you have not failed if your kid is coming to back home no matter how much body positive body justice fat positive messaging you're having at home it is very likely they're going to come back and they might even be mad at you for having that message but it's okay to just stay on that path you haven't failed as a parent if you're if you're doing that and your kid's not like seeming to absorb it they are don't worry um (laughs) the next thing is you know kind of implement if you can right like implement and model and no body shame no food shame policy and this is really difficult right because again, I think there is a ton of scrutiny on how people, particularly women and femmes when they're raising kids, how they feed their kids. And yeah, it's, uh, it's and again, too much. It's yeah. too much. It comes, I mean, we thankfully we get to talk about it with a lot of experts here on the on the podcast, but oh my gosh, it's it's so pervasive. It's a daily conversation yeah. in the mm-hmm. in with other parents. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, totally. And I mean, I think, you know, and I understand that, but it's important to also understand the context of where that's happening, right? It's happening in a culture where, you know, again, I I see that conversation as deeply sexist because when we look at the numbers, when we look at the statistics, women are still the primary caregivers. They're the primary people who are feeding their children. So whenever we're talking about how children are eating, we are talking about moms. We are talking about feminine people, right? Like, so it's already always sexist, in my opinion. That conversation is already always happening in that context. Um, The next thing is, the other, like, looming reality is this really intense fat phobia, right, that's, like, happening. Um, And there's obviously elements of classism, right? Like, you know, this idea that, like, foods that are associated with poverty that are available, like quick food, um, is demonized, right? Which is like, just not helpful. And that appears quickly. It's racism because of its connection to poverty. And I want to contextualize my, my work goes into all different areas, but I did a deep dive recently on the, um, the social determinants of health. And it was interesting to note that, right. So in the overall pie chart, of a, a person's overall health, right? Like the the piece of the pie, if we, if we were to sort of think of it as a pie and cut up different slices, right? The slice that is actually like our individual efforts mm-hmm. is about 30 to 40% of the pie. 40% is the most generous by Kaiser Permanente um, <laughs> estimate of how much power an individual has in their overall health. But like the less incentivized, slightly more objective people largely say it's 30%. So 30% is the prevailing statistic on like, you know, so, and and what's, what's really interesting to see is like, well, so what's, what's 70% of the pie, right? When it comes to your overall health as a, as a child, as a person overall, it's actually things like things you don't have control over, right? Like things like, you know, whether or not you're experiencing trauma, whether or not you have access to healthcare, whether or not you have access to public transportation. Um, And people are often shocked to hear that how you eat is like 
low on the list. Anyway, it's, it's useful to have that context for people where yeah. it's like, all right, so how do we pivot out of this? I've found that in general, right, like if you teach and model and try to embody that food and movement are things that we do for play and for joy. They're not things that we do to create outcomes. And I think that really helps when you get into like, you know, ending food shaming and body shaming at home, right? Like when we get rid of the good food, bad food binary, because I think what's really interesting is people think that it's helpful to have food being binaries, but it actually just creates anxiety, sometimes depression, um, and and sometimes eating disorders, right? Like, yeah. and, and mm-hmm. I, I think people don't realize that dieting is a behavior like weight control, weight restricting, food restricting, period, already always leads to a pathological relationship to food and the body, which I think we can objectively understand is not a good thing. Um, And that it's actually the loosening of these regulations and the sort of like increasing that space for fun and play that are actually what are at the core of the solution that are like a lot of our problems in our in our culture, you know? Yeah, no, definitely. Well, binaries do tend to be problematic, <laughs> no matter what we're talking about, whether it's food binaries or gender binaries. But, um, ugh, I mean, we, we could certainly keep going. And um, I'm, I'm particularly excited for your book in May. But before we let you go, Virgie, we, we like to ask everyone um, sort of a continuation of the question, maybe a consolidation of the question we just asked you which is if each parent listening to this podcast took away and did just one thing on the regular, what's the one thing you would recommend they do to help their child fully bloom? Mm, I mean, I think it, it's sort of, it's sort of an idea. So, and I'm such an idea, idea oriented person. So I'm just going to say it, right? Like <laughs> just I, say it. We want to hear it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you can always help distill it. <laughs> I would put forth the question, like, what would the world look like if we believe that every single person deserved to live a life free from bigotry and discrimination, regardless of size and health status? And I think the next part, maybe the part of that is like to give parents the freedom to imagine a world that is that isn't full of all the problems that we have. And to kind of hold space for your child to imagine that world with you. And it can be this mutually healing experience. Um, How can we act as if we are in that world while still being smart about taking care of ourselves and protecting ourselves? I love the answer because it's actually a very concrete question. I'm basically hearing you say this would be a really good question to ask yourself every day and ask your child sometimes too. And I think that's a wonderful way to interject this this just concept of thinking critically and dreaming and and just putting social justice on the table. This is a project of dreaming and imagining mm-hmm. and how fun that is. <laughs> right, being being curious and inventive. So where can people can people pre-order your book? Yes, it's available for pre-order pretty much anywhere books are sold. You can also get it in physical bookstores on May 1st um, when it comes out. Um, And again, the name is The Self-Love Revolution, Radical Body Positivity for Girls of Color. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for your time today. And we'll make sure to link all of the references you've made to 
the show notes so that our listeners can hear and yeah. can find out more. So thanks again. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. I love that this was our last episode of season two because I feel that this season, season two, has for me deepened my well of activism and my understanding of how much Virgie's work is on the forefront of moving body positive parenting forward. You know, I feel like we touched this episode, touched on so many things that we talked about, you know, the base of this season, like um, Sabrina Strings. Mm -hmm. Like the racist roots of diet culture. Yeah. And um, Deborah Gard. Mm -hmm. To me, Deborah Gard and Virgie Tovar feel like the next generation of Deborah Gard. And Deborah Gard is just like such a grandmother to me of Mm -hmm. like this, the work that I think we're doing. So it was wonderful to have both of them on. Um this season so many great guests this season oh my goodness I'm thinking Christy Harrison and her I'm in the middle of reading her book right now and her book is just so amazing so if you haven't bought it please buy it it's just or listen to it yeah I'm listening to it because that's my lifestyle your medium my medium and that book anti-diet which she was uh, here a few weeks ago talking about I can't agree more I mean we had an incredible lineup and I think we definitely deepened our and hopefully listeners appreciation of the intersectionality of all of it, right? Like, you know, that trifecta we talk about in our speaking engagements of weight stigma, appearance ideals, and diet culture. I think part of what's missing from it is the recognition that this is not just about appearance or it's not just about weight. I mean, it is, but it's also about race and class and, and social determinants social of health. Social determinants of health, which I think we could totally get into more next season. And that we talked like with Justine Fonte about sex and that we talked with Lisa Hendricks and Jack about the period. The period. Menstruating and, and how related it is to our, our relationship as women with our bodies. Yes. And sort of noticing all the places that shame finds people, I think that we definitely were able to get more into. We just talked about so much. We talked about gut health. We talked about cleanses. We talked about dieting for kids and teens and all of the F, all of the negative aspects of Mm -hmm. that. Uh, Hopefully this season we clarified for our listeners how to really separate weight from health. That was one of my goals. I hope that I achieved that or we achieved that. Mm -hmm. What do you hope people got from this season? I hope that people got more of a sense of how all of this connects to social justice. And I'm also hopeful, especially on the heels of the second to last episode of the season with L.B. Moore and Allegra Gordon, I'm hoping that sort of we can continue to challenge ourselves to move into our next season with really like inclusion at the top of the, you know, at at the forefront priority because it's too easy for people to even continue to assume that 
our project is really for moms and daughters. Right. And it's not a ridiculous assumption. Our, like the demographic that has found us is certainly mostly that. But that's, you know, I, I guess that would be a goal for next season to sort of increase the reach. And I do think we tried this year talking much more explicitly about health at every size. And that is my my goal. And I hope that others sort of felt that they could deepen their appreciation of all that we're talking about to understand that this is not just about the thin ideal and that this is not just about preventing girls from having eating disorders, but that this really is about allowing children of all genders and races and socioeconomic backgrounds and everybody to really bloom in full and that it's bigger perhaps than even we thought getting started. I think so, although I think on some level our our name, the Full Bloom Project, had that mission That's to true. begin with is like we we just want all people to have a thriving life as as Virgie Tovar referenced a couple times. Um so, you know, if you are really enjoying our podcast, we would love if you could leave a rating on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us get more listeners. And frankly, we, we need more listeners in order to keep producing yeah. this work. It, it shows us that people are interested. People want us to keep doing this. So if you wouldn't mind, if you want us to keep doing this, please go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating or review, it really helps the algorithm to, you know, put forth an, this as an option, like a, a potential listen for someone who hasn't found the podcast before. Mm-hmm. And I suppose we will have to continue to ask for that into next season as well. It's funny, as an independent producer of a podcast, you, you don't realize how much promotion goes into it. And so it's a great way to kind of give back to our community and just really kind of join together to keep it going and another way to do that is to become a patron of the podcast which we're so grateful to all of you who are supporting currently through a sustaining donation you can learn more about that at fullbloomproject.com patreon so please just hold for a week mm-hmm. we'll be back and we thank you so much for listening and supporting us this season and last season And tune back in in two weeks for more body-positive parenting wisdom. That's right.